The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. again everybody welcome to sports talk new york on wgbb here in merrick long island new york bill donahue with you i'm taking you through the first hour on this the 25th day of june 2023 our engineer brian graves is right across the way happy to welcome you aboard tonight so glad that you can be with us got a special show lined up for you tonight leading off we'll speak with the former brooklyn dodger ace and he's the recipient of the Buck O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award for 2023. The great Carl Erskine will join us. And stepping in in round two, we will talk to the former third baseman for some really great Dodger ball clubs. The Penguin himself will be here, Ron Say. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy this edition of Sports Talk New York tonight on GBB. As always, great people, great sports talk and some great memories up ahead. I want to talk to you about social media. We are out there on Facebook. You can find the page, give us a look, give us a like. We're on LinkedIn. We're also on Twitter, at WGBB Sports Talk. And you can follow me on Twitter, at B. Donahue WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry, because they're all out on the website at am1240wgbb.com. Well, our first guest, he played his entire career for the Brooklyn and Los Angeles Dodgers from 1948 through 1959, uh, pitching mainstay on Dodger teams, which won five National League pennants, peaking with the 1953 season in which he won 20 games and set a World Series record uh, with 14 strikeouts in a single game striking out Mandel four times. He pitched two of the National League's seven no-hitters that took place during the 50s. And as I said, he's the recipient of the Baseball Hall of Fame's Buck O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award for 2023. I'd like to welcome to Sports Talk New York tonight, Mr. Carl Erskine. Carl, good evening. Hello there. Nice to hear from you. Wonderful to have you with us, Carl. It's a pleasure. Now, I want to ask you, your baseball hero when you were a boy was the Babe, correct? Absolutely. He was the name for baseball in my day, kid day. So Babe Ruth, uh, we all mimicked uh, Babe Ruth, and uh, he was the superstar. Okay, yeah, well, not a bad idol to have, Carl, that's for sure. Now, growing up in Anderson, Indiana... You met a young kid named Johnny Wilson, and you guys became friends that lasted a lifetime. I want to tell the uh, the folks out there that uh, the friendship between Carl and Johnny, vividly depicted in Ted Green's film about Carl, which is titled The Best We've Got, The Carl Erskine Story. Uh, if you go to carlerskinefilm.com, you can find out more about this great documentary. Tell us, Carl, a little bit about your relationship with Johnny Wilson. Well, we were probably uh, as young as uh, nine or ten years old, walking to uh, elementary school. He lived a block from where I lived, 
so we would meet on the way to school. It was just a routine for Johnny and me to uh, to uh, go to like any kid would mm-hmm. to school. We stayed out of trouble. We both liked sports. And Johnny was a superstar, particularly in basketball. But in the state of Indiana, he's well known as Mr. Basketball. Mm-hmm. And uh, Johnny and I were just good buddies. He's a, a black young man, and uh, but that never entered into our friendship in any way at all. In fact, I never even thought of the think uh, think of the word right. uh, black or white. So Johnny and I were very close. We had uh, we were brothers without the blood. <laughs> right, and uh, as uh, depicted in the film, folks. Uh, Johnny and, and uh, Carl's relationship started with the simple, and we've all well, been yeah, there. Excuse me, I'm trying to interrupt you. I'm having a lot of trouble holding this phone with my arthritic hands. That's okay, Carl. Um, the relationship started with the simple, do you want to play? Just uh, We've all experienced that, and, and that's how it started between these guys, and, and it's a great story, and you could see more of it in that documentary. Now, you signed with Brooklyn. You had many suitors, Carl, vying for your services, but tell, tell us a little bit about the impact that Branch Rickey had not only on your career but upon your life, too. Well, I've always said... Uh that Mr. Ricky, next to my father, was the most influential man in my life. Uh, Mr. Ricky scouted me in the minors. Uh, he signed me to the Dodger contract, and he was always a very supportive uh, person in my life. So I gave him, next to my father, uh, the most influential person in my life. That's the great Branch Rickey, ladies and gentlemen, the Hall of Famer. Now, the first Dodger teammate to welcome you to the team, Carl, was, of all people, Jackie Robinson. Can you tell us about that initial meeting when you met Jackie? Yeah, it actually was uh, the other way around. Jackie uh, pointed me out and ah, came over yeah. and talked to me mm-hmm. uh, at, at a uh, minor I was still in the minor leagues. But he saw me uh, there at the workout, and he came over to me, and he said, Young man, I hit against you twice today. You're not going to be in this minor leagues very long. Mm-hmm. You're going to be with us, which meant the, the, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Sure enough, uh, I won 15 games by uh, mid-July, and uh, the Dodgers called me to, to Brooklyn. And when I got to my locker, the first guy there, to greet me was uh, Jackie Robinson. He shook my hand again. I told you, Carl, you couldn't miss. Right. So what a welcoming hand that was. Great, great, great story that is, Carl. And uh, you, you spoke with Jackie about the, the black and white thing, as he called it. And he noted... I'm not hearing you real well. Okay. He, uh, ja- Hello. You there, Carl? You there? Yeah, right here. Okay. Yeah, we got you, Carl. Now, Jackie uh, spoke to you about the whole black and white thing, as he called it, and he noted that he saw life as being divided, but you saw it as being connected. Well, I guess that was 
a good way to put it. I never thought of it quite that way. Mm -hmm. But uh, color, in terms of uh, the skin color, I grew up in a mixed neighborhood. One of my best buddies was Johnny Wilson, and uh, he and I were probably nine or ten years old walking to school together from our neighborhood. Uh, Johnny, of course, became one of the great athletes in Indiana. And so, uh, but he and I uh, bonded uh, without a question. Uh, we never thought of the uh, color barrier of any kind. He ate meals at my house. I ate meals at his house. And uh, our bondage was very good. And it was very natural, very normal. We're speaking with Carl Erskine tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, you've been present for so many great moments in baseball history, Carl. Don Larson's perfect game in the 56 World Series. And a story that I love, I love to hear is, uh, about the shot heard round the world at the Polo Grounds. That was October 3rd, 1951, folks. People may not know, Carl, that you were warming up with Ralph Branca down in the Dodger bullpen, but uh, you can tell us what happened from there while you were warming up. Yes, Ralph and I were, were warming up, and when the call came to the bullpen, the bullpen coach, Clyde Sukaforth, answered the phone, and they must have asked him, uh, are they throwing, who's throwing the best? Uh -huh. And he said, they're both warmed up, they're both throwing well, uh, Erskine's bouncing his curveball. <laughs> so, so with that comment, the coach at the mound called Branca in instead of me. Right. So, the rest of the story, of course, is history. Uh, I think his second pitch, uh, Thompson hit the home run, which is now tagged, uh, Shot her around the world, <laughs> and, and you—you uh, you, you had have been me uh, as well. But it turned out that uh, Ralph took the blow and took all the heat that's come with it after uh, after that uh, home run was hit. And and you said, um, Carl, that that bouncing the, the, those curveballs was was the best pitch you threw in in uh, your career, correct? <laughs> well, tongue in cheek. Uh, yeah. Comment. Uh, the fact was, <clears throat> I had an overhand curveball that broke down, sharply down. And it had to be down to be good. You couldn't hang it up in a, a hitter's face. But it caused it to hit in the dirt often. So Campy, of course, was my catcher most of my career. Uh, he said, you bury it, Carl. I'll get it. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Uh, I throw that overhand curveball, and if it was a good one, it had to be low. And if it was low, it was almost certain to hit hit the dirt. But Campanella knew how to block it, knew how to catch it, and I had very few wild pitches with with Campy as my catcher. The great Campanella, yeah. Now you were you were pitching your your final complete game of your career. I believe it was 1958, Carl. And uh, your thoughts were with uh, Roy Campanella, who just had his his terrible accident not long before. Tell us a little bit more about Campy and and the impact he had on on your performances. Well, Campy had taught me for probably ten years, I suppose. 
I went to see him in the hospital uh, when he had that neck, uh, broken neck injury, had a car accident. And uh, he was face down on this special bed. His eye, his uh, face was exposed, uh, looking straight down. He said they gave him uh, a TV set up to watch the games that was used with a mirror, and he could watch lying face down. Mm-hmm. He could watch uh, the games. And so that's the way I saw him and talked to him when I visited him. And uh, Roy never blamed anybody. He never begged uh, why me. And uh, he just handled it till you couldn't imagine how uh, how much discipline it took. Yeah, the great Roy Campanella. Now, I want to talk to you about Game 3 of the 53 series when you struck out 14 New York Yankees, including the great Mantle four times. Would you say, Carl, that uh, that was the best stuff that you've had in your career, or would that uh, be attributed to one of your two no-hitters? What do you think? Well, I'd have to say that uh, the circumstance of being in a World Series, it puts that in a a class by itself. Mm -hmm. And to accomplish something, uh, a a record like in a World Series, uh, I think that has to almost top any any other kind of performance. So I was fortunate uh, to pitch two no-hitters otherwise in a regular season. Right, but that that game in the series uh, will always stand out for me. What a performance it was! Now, now I want to talk to you about a, your son Jimmy. Uh, he opened a, a new. Just a minute, I'm losing you. Okay, hold on a minute. Okay, could you start over that question, please? Yes, sure, sure, Carl. The birth of your son Jimmy opened a new chapter in your lives for you and your wife Betty. Uh, you elected to bring Jimmy home and care for him instead of institutionalizing him. Uh, we can kind of compare that, Carl, uh, Jimmy's arrival to Branch Rickey bringing in Jackie Robinson because you were breaking new ground by bringing Jimmy home. Well, my wife Betty and I both agreed, but she was a spokesman at the time mm-hmm. that the question came up. What are you going to do? Where are you going to place Jimmy? She made a very strong and heartfelt comment. He goes home with us. As Betty said it, he's my baby. He goes home with us. Mm -hmm. And he he did go home with us. And it was the right move. Uh, He's been a blessing to us and to uh, all of our family. And I think it's uh, said a word to the world, if if he's your son or daughter, take him home, take her home. Mm -hmm. Jimmy's been a blessing to us and to my whole family, so he served a wonderful purpose of being as he is. Yeah, I, I was introduced, folks, to Jimmy Erskine through Roger Kahn's depiction of him uh, in the classic book, The Boys of Summer. How, how's Jimmy doing these days, Carl? Oh, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy's the centerpiece in our life, really. <laughs> uh, 
surprisingly enough, very old Jimmy now, 62, 63. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he was supposed to live to his mid-30s, but uh, he's, he's always been a fighter. Uh, he's uh, he's over, overcome lots of odds. Uh, he's he's a lovable uh, man, young young man. Uh, he's worked. He had a job at Applebee's restaurant here in my hometown of Anderson, Indiana. He worked twenty years wow. at Applebee's. Nice. And uh, when he was awarded his twenty year. Uh, uh, a clock. He got a, a beautiful clock mm-hmm. for 20 years employment at, at Applebee's restaurant. The people there supported him so well and so surprisingly enough he was an employee at this top restaurant in our town for 20 years and uh, that wouldn't have been possible if it hadn't been for the other members of the staff uh, and the owners all supporting Jimmy and uh, giving him this excellent opportunity to work out among the, the public. Right. And uh, he could handle his job. He knew his routine. And uh, it's been a highlight in his life. And, of course, his mom and dad are mighty proud of him. For sure, definitely. A, a tribute to you that uh, Jimmy ha- had such a great career at Applebee's. Now, I, I want to talk to you about... Uh, your teammate and a guy who means so much to us here in New York, Gil Hodges, finally made it to Cooperstown, Carl, a fellow Indiana native. And uh, you tell a great story about Gil's funeral, how uh, you guys were all together and uh, the organist played back home again in Indiana, and that was uh, some moment, wasn't it? Well, she used to say that uh, when I came to this or... Uh, when uh, Gil would uh, come to bat, mm-hmm. uh, oh yeah, that uh, that really got me too. At the time, it was a very emotional moment for her to play that at that time. So uh, it was one of one of the tough uh, emotional moments of my life in baseball to have that uh, organist play back home in Indiana. Yeah, and. Uh... You were a champion for a long time in uh, trying to get Gill into Cooperstown. Well, you know, the timing of that has been a little strange because he was a dominant first baseman in uh, our league for a decade at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't anybody else close, but it just didn't all come together until... Uh, the vote finally was made, and he was uh, elected uh, in the Hall of Fame. So I guess you can say uh, things that turn out to be right will always happen regardless of how long it takes. And this was something that was right and should have happened sooner, but uh, it finally did, and uh, he was well, well deserving of it. As Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Carl, all good things come to those who wait. So I guess that that was the situation. <laughs> that fits up perfectly. Yeah, with Gil. Now, the Hall of Fame 
is giving you the Buck O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award. And I want to tell the folks that is presented by the Hall of Fame's Board of Directors. It's given not more than once every three years. It honors an individual whose extraordinary efforts enhance baseball's positive impact on society, broaden the game's appeal, and whose character, integrity, and dignity are comparable to the qualities exhibited by Buck O'Neill. Tell us what what, uh, receiving this award means to you, Carl. Well, of course, baseball has been my life since I was uh, probably eight or nine years old. Uh, And then uh, having all the experiences along the way up through uh, the performance at the Hall of Fame. Uh, It's it's just uh, so humbling. It's hard to express an emotion that comes to me from thinking about this skinny kid from Anderson, Indiana, uh, being on that big stage and making any kind of an impact. Uh, It's just beyond uh, fantasy land for me. Yeah, and what a day that will be uh, to see you take your rightful place in, in Cooperstown. While we have a few minutes, Carl, I want to ask you, what hitters particularly gave you a hard time during your career? Say that again, I'm sorry. What what hitters that you faced gave you a hard time? Well, the best hitter in the league uh, year after year was Stan Musial. Oh, boy, yeah. And uh, somebody asked me, how do you pitch to Musial? I said, well, I'm showing my best pitch and then back up third base. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's well, he, was, he was a kind of hitter that you can't pitch to. Uh, if the pitch is inside, he pulled it. If it was down the middle, he hit it back up the middle. If it was outside at the plate, he, he would hit it the opposite field. That kind of a hitter has no weakness. So he was the purest hitter, I think, that I faced in 12 seasons. And I faced him, believe it or not, 164 times. Now, I wouldn't have known that except a fan looked up the stats on that and told me that Musial was the batter, the one batter that I faced the most times of any other batter in my 12 seasons in the big league. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. It's an irony that uh, it's hard to, hard to believe, but uh, the numbers, 164 times I faced Musial. I know that I struck him out in all those times at bat, only four times. He was a very difficult strikeout. Yeah. And uh, it, it, he, was just, he was just that kind of a pure hitter. Now, you played for a bunch of different managers through your minor league and major league career, Carl. Carl Erskine's with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Who was your favorite manager to play for, Carl? Well, I played for four different managers. Mm -hmm. They all had their strengths. And Charlie Dresden, probably, I would pick because... He left me in more ball games than it obvious to me was a time to to get a fresh pitcher in the league because in the game because I was having a rough inning. But he came out to the mound and 
Uh, he took the ball from me right away. So I didn't know. I just thought that meant I'm going. But within a minute or two of talking to me, he would slam the ball back into my glove <laughs> and leave me in the ball game. Now, he did that repeatedly. So it wasn't just like it happened occasionally, but he seemed to always feel like uh, I had something left. Fortunately, to reward him for leaving me in, I pitched some of my best games after I'd had a rough inning and should have normally been taken out and replaced. But he left me in, and from that point to the finish of the game, I had pitched some remarkable games where, where I had some long streaks of uh, getting out consecutively, 18 or 19 in a row. So um, he had faith in me more than I had in myself, but uh, but he often did that, and and I guess in a way he was rewarded because I pitched some of my best games after I'd had a rough inning, and he left me in to finish the game. And most of those games I ended up being a winning pitcher. There, there was the one game, Carl. I believe you, you, uh, you had a rough time. You retired the next nineteen hitters, and I believe it was your anniversary. And you, you, you told Charlie Dressen that uh, you were going to take your wife out for dinner that night, and he came out to the mound and he said, "Well, let's see if we could get out of here." Remember yeah. that? <laughs> so don't keep your wife waiting. And from that point on, I, I think, I can't remember exactly, 19 in a row, I think it was. Yeah. And I retired at the end of the game. <laughs> nice. Well, the manager, uh, Charlie Dressen particularly, not, not only him, but Austin as well, they seemed to have confidence in me, even after a rough inning. Uh, they didn't give up on me. And because of that, I had some strong finishes. Uh, after I'd had a rough inning or two, mm-hmm. and uh, so I was, uh, I was fortunate that the managers I had saw more in me at times than I saw in myself, and uh, would leave me in a ball game that normally I thought probably might have should have been taken out, but it worked out. He had, he had the faith in you to, to uh, let you see it through. I'm losing you a little bit here. Okay. Uh, I just We're almost done, Carl. I just want to say you are the epitome of uh, the human spirit reaching its full potential. As Jackie Robinson once said, a life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. And in... in your situation, Carl, that that's that fits you to a T. I'd I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us here on Long Island. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Again, congratulations on the Buck O'Neill Award. We wish you and the family nothing but the best. Well, you're very kind and you're very thoughtful, and all the fans that can hear me in Long Island. I used to live on Long Island. Uh, I loved it there. We had a lot of friends still there. But uh, thank you for this time together. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much, Carl. Thank you for Jim Denny for setting it up and for Ted Green for making such a wonderful picture. Thank you, Carla, and uh, we'll see you in Cooperstown.
Okay, my my pleasure, and thank you again. That is the great Carl Erskine, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we will welcome in the Penguin, Ron Say. Stick around, folks. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 12:40 a.m. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're back with Sports Talk New York here on WGBB. Just want to tell you, I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to visit uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for the Mets Pirates Series. Uh, PNC Park, it's really a gem, a beautiful setting. Uh, it overlooks the city skyline of Pittsburgh at the bridge that they named after Roberto Clemente, the Clemente Bridge, and it's right on the Allegheny River. And Pittsburgh, as we know, it's, uh, it's at the confluence of the Allegheny and Monongahela Rivers, uh, where they form the mighty Ohio. I just like to say Monongahela, folks, so that's why I mentioned it. And uh, the park is right in the city. Great statues of uh, Honus Wagner, Roberto Clemente, and Willie Stargell around the park. And we went, we went around uh, back to Manny's Barbecue Stand, where most days uh, the great Manny Sanguian, the former pirate backstop, uh, sits and sign autographs. A, re- a really great man. Uh, the hotel we stayed at was right across the street from the ballpark. We'd like to go back. Uh, we're probably going to try to go to Camden Yards next year. Uh, there's a direct flight out to Pittsburgh if anybody wants to go next year. Well, we're off to go into round two of the program. Our next guest, he's nicknamed the Penguin, a third baseman from 1971 through 1987, most notably as an integral member of the Los Angeles Dodgers team that won four National League pennants and one World Series, six-time All-Star. He was named World Series MVP after leading the Dodgers to victory in 81. He ended his career playing for the Cubs and the A's. He has a new book out from our friends at Triumph in Chicago called Penguin Power, Dodger Blue, Hollywood Lights, and my one-in-a-million big league journey. Welcome to the show, Ron Say. Bill, thank you for having me. How are you today? Oh, we're doing fine, Ron. Great to have you aboard. Now, as a kid in Washington State, who were your sports heroes and uh, your favorite teams as a kid? Well, it took a while for me to uh, come to terms with it, but uh, Willie Reyes is my favorite player. Um, and I had a unique experience with that. Uh, uh, not only did I have the, uh, baseball dream at a young age, 
but uh, I got to uh, play against uh, my idol, and uh, that was quite a thrill. And uh, certainly uh, over a period of time, we developed a relationship, so it went full circle. So it was uh, really something I feel very special about. Nice story, Ron. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about this later on. Wasn't there a time where he hit a home run and he was coming your way and and you you wanted to uh, stop him and and congratulate him? (laughs) That was my rookie year. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) Willie was finishing up in New York with the Mets. We were playing a game at Chase Stadium. Willie was in the lineup. He had a home run, I guess, midway through the game. Uh, and he was coming around the bases, and I'm saying, you know, this is really too cool. Uh, <laughs> here comes my idol. And, uh, you know, I've got my glove over my face, and I'm saying, you know, I really want to shake this guy's hand, you know. <laughs> but I let him pass. It was his moment. Um, you know, over the years, I had a... Uh, a picture with he and I taken at Dodger Stadium behind the batting cage when he was traveling a bit with the Giants back then. And, uh, and I had had this, uh, a picture with me for 40 years. And about five or six years ago, I think it was probably five years ago now, uh, the Dodgers and Giants celebrated up in San Francisco, uh, the move west from New York. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we were, I was a small group that was invited to go up and I had, taken the picture with me in hopes that Willie would be there and I sent out a feeler before we went up there and there was a possibility and when I got to the stadium that day um, one of the old clubhouse guys that was in my era of baseball was still working there and he came over and he said Ron come on let's go Uh, we're going to go over and see Willie so uh, I got all excited again and uh, went over there and spent about uh, 20 minutes with him got my picture signed uh, he was with his caretaker, and uh, we just had a nice chat for about 20 minutes. Nice. Great great story. You also had an opportunity, Ron, that I read about uh, with Henry Aaron. Of course, we know right. that the Dodgers were in town when Hank hit number 715 off uh, Little Al Downing and uh, hit, hits one over the launching pad there in Atlanta, Caught by Tom House. Now he's coming around, and everybody knows these two guys. These two guys are as famous uh, as Henry Aaron, I think. And they have their picture on the wall in Cooperstown. Uh, I, 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 I read where that you can. I was thinking of getting one of the guys on the show. Uh, they're in every clip, of course, that you see of Henry Aaron, and he's coming around. And of course, Bill Russell and Davy Lopes congratulate him. And what happened when he came by third base? Well, you know, once I saw the the, the two kids converge on him at second base, and then he was trying to shrug them off. Right. <laughs> you know, all I was going to try to do was, you know, uh, you know, I was all I was going to do is probably get in the way. So I just, you know, it's kind of unfortunate uh, that that happened because I wanted to do that, but. Uh, I let it pass, and uh, I think Joe Ferguson met him between half, our catcher met him halfway between third and home, and then they had the ceremony uh, after he touched home plate. It took about 30 minutes, but, uh, you know, we were really thrilled. Uh, we wanted it to happen uh, while we were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted a special moment, and it is the most historical game uh, that I played in, uh, as far as major league history and tradition goes. And the following week, Atlanta came to Dodger Stadium. And when he arrived, I came over to the visitors clubhouse and sat down 
and waited for him briefly, and I had two pictures and two balls, and I said, Henry, I'm not going anywhere until you sign these posters and balls because I missed out last week. So, right. Uh, it was great, and he was obliging. And, of course, uh, you know, uh, you know, my favorite player, and then having this happen with uh, with uh, Aaron, uh, Mays and Aaron, uh, playing an all-star game with Aaron um, in 74, um, doesn't get much better than that. No, those are great stories, Ron. And uh, Penguin Power is full of stories like that, folks. Now, you were selected in the second phase of the 68 draft uh, after playing ball at Washington State. Anybody make a significant impact uh, on you on your journey to the to the major leagues, Ron? Oh, you know, there are lots of impacts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I... You know, I, I had this childhood dream that I nurtured. Uh, you know, I had this thing planned out. You know, I ran into a little bit of a roadblock uh, when I was in high school because uh, I was drafted by the Mets. Uh, I had a college scholarship, and I also had the Vietnam War staring me in the face. Oh, boy. And uh, the only way that I could stay out of uh, going to uh, Vietnam was to enroll in school. So I... Pretty much had to turn down the offer to do what I wanted to do in the moment uh, and go to school, protect myself. And then uh, the draft laws for professional baseball were a little different back then. So I signed after my sophomore year and uh, and left. And uh, I still had an obligation to go back to school because I'm now faced with a different situation uh, as far as, uh, you know, my profession now. I'm tackling that as well. So. I had to get into a reserve unit and uh, do my basic training in AIT, and then I was uh, had a six-year commitment. But it actually allowed me to uh, fulfill the service duty and and play my profession. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to let the folks know. Uh, of course, they they know in Los Angeles, but uh, everywhere else, uh, whoever's listening around the country and and uh, around the world, if I could be so optimistic. Um, June 23rd, 1973, we just had the 50th anniversary, folks, of uh, the first game that that great Dodger infield of Steve Garvey, Davey Lopes, Bill Russell, and Ron Say played together. And did they have any celebrations uh, to mark the occasion out in L.A., Ron? Uh, yeah, we had an honoring uh, uh, on Friday night, and uh, it is... One of the gems in the Dodgers hat that uh, covers 50 years. Uh, the others that I can recall offhand are the Dodgers moving west uh, from Brooklyn, Vince Scully's career, uh, the honoring of Jackie Robinson, and the Dodger infield. Yeah. And um, uh, it didn't necessarily feel like uh, a golden anniversary uh, for some reason, but um, Davey Lopes was the one who was absent from it, couldn't make it. Uh, and, you know, the rest of us were there. But uh, it's it's something uh, that's going to be in baseball for a very long time. Uh, we played eight and a half years together with the longest-running infield, the most successful infield in Major League history, and that's a fact. Uh, yeah. you, can, you can go look it up if you want to, but it doesn't really – it's not a contest between whether you think you like this infield better than this one or the other. It's a factual one. And right. so, uh, 
opinions here are nice, uh, but when you start crunching the numbers, there's really nothing there. So we're extremely proud of the fact that uh, we added, uh, you know, our era of Dodger baseball uh, and carried the flag uh, of the history and tradition and made our mark um, with what we had uh, to deal with when we were here. Uh, didn't feel like pressure. Uh, it was just an expectation. Uh, and we were handed that. And so we had a very, very big blue bullseye in our forehead uh, for the whole time that we were here, and we loved it. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like 50 years, Ron, to me anyway. Uh, 50 years is a long time, but uh, it seems like yesterday you guys were out there and uh, playing the Yankees in the World Series, and uh, uh, time just flies. That's uh, that's all I can say. Respe- yes, it does. And as a matter of fact, uh, uh, this event here that was held uh, a couple of days ago, uh, Somehow Reggie Jackson found his way into the ballpark. Oh man! <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, we did an interview, and and Red, Reggie was around, and I'm saying, "You're not going to steal our thunder tonight, man. Uh, you've done that before. <laughs> yeah. Get out of the way." Right. And uh, Jim Hill, our uh, CBS broadcaster here, had Reggie and I on, and uh, you know, we kind of snuck in, and uh, he says, "What do you remember best about Reggie? Two things you remember about Reggie." And I said, "Well." I remember he hurt us with his bat, and I remember when he hurt us with his hip. And I said, the one with the hip hurt worse than the bat. Yeah. And uh, that's the 1978 World Series where we didn't have instant replay. And Reggie's version of it is a little bit different, but uh, it's really obvious. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it was uh, that was uh, also my most uh, disappointing uh, moment. Uh, in Major League Baseball, my career—that one, that losing that one. Oh yeah, that that was a rough one. And f- folks, uh, kids can Google that and uh, just check out Reggie's uh, act that night. Uh, <laughs> step, yeah. st- really stepping into uh, a pitch, going out of his way to get hit, and uh, should sh- shouldn't have been called that way. But uh, as they say, history. And there you go. Uh, we're speaking yeah. with, with Ron Say tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, the Penguin, how did that come about? Uh, when I was at school at Washington State University, uh, the coach there, uh, his name was Chuck Bobo Brayton, uh, a highly successful collegiate coach, won over a 1,000 games uh, during his career there. Uh, the year that I was there, uh, I think we were ranked in the top ten for quite a bit of the season. Uh, we did not have regional tournaments back then. We were only able to play 38 games, uh, which is not much of a measurement. But, uh, we, uh, we were able, we, we beat every team in the conference. We beat Stanford when they were number one. Uh, USC eventually was the conference champion. And USC, uh, got a, a direct berth to Omaha in the College World Series. And, uh, they won the College World Series that year. Mm-hmm. So we had some, some teams that uh, were very representative, but uh, under the old structure, we didn't get a chance to show that off much. That's Washington State, folks. That, that's what we're speaking of now, uh, Ron's alma mater. Now, the, the and, uh, you know, there's another. I, I need to mention one other thing. You know, we had one other player that uh, uh, really made his mark uh, professionally. Uh, I also played with a guy that I grew up with that was a first round draft pick and played major league baseball left handed. A uh, pitcher named Rick Austin, but uh, John mm-hmm. Olerud. 
Oh boy! Uh, was yeah. the Shohei Otani, uh, Otani, uh, excuse me, of of today's version of Major League Baseball, and he had an incredible, I think, junior year, uh, where he hit something like 420, and also on the mound went 15 and 0. And uh, <laughs> it, it sounds crazy; it is crazy, but uh, you know those things have happened on a much lower level. Uh, but uh, what you're seeing with uh, Shohei Otani is really something for uh, the ages. Uh, please enjoy this guy's performance as long as it lasts. Uh, this is really something spectacular. That's true, Ron. Yeah, and we had John Olroot here for a while with the Mets, and uh, all I can say is yeah. w- what a hitter he was. He won a batting crown, and he, uh, he won a world championship, I believe, as well with the uh, Toronto Blue Jays. Right. Now, your book, as we're talking about tonight, Penguin Power, uh, it, it really shows how any goal is not achieved alone, really. You had uh, so much devoted to others in the book. Uh, talk a little bit about Peter O'Malley. Um, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it was just a family-owned ownership. We don't have those anymore. Right. Um, it was an unbelievable period of time to be uh, playing for the Dodgers uh, because they were so rich in the history and tradition. And uh, I want to tell you that when I uh, saw my very first baseball game, I don't know how old I was, um, but it was a game back from uh, from from Boston. That was, or excuse me, uh, Brooklyn and uh, Evans Field. And uh, I, I don't know uh, if there's any destiny to that, but uh, that certainly uh, I remembered that. Uh, the very first professional game I saw was a AAA game in Seattle. Uh, the Seattle Rainiers were a combination of Boston Red Sox and Cincinnati Reds back then. Mm-hmm. And I got a chance to see Veda Pinson and Frank Malzahn and a few others pass through there. But the Spokane Indians were also the AAA affiliate of, uh, of the Los Angeles Dodgers. So my first game on TV, uh, my first professional game related to the Dodgers. Speaking of Dodger Blue, uh, Ron, how about Tommy Lasorda? Uh, you know, Tommy uh, uh, was a hands-on guy. Uh, he liked to hug his players a lot. Uh, he certainly understood talent. Recognized it extremely well. Um, when our group came in in 1968, we uh, took just about all the guys that were going to be household Dodger names uh, and took them under his wing and nurtured us and uh, deserves a tremendous amount of credit for our development. And uh, when we essentially graduated to the major leagues, so did he. And uh, four years after that, Walter Alston, our Hall of Fame manager, uh, steps down and uh, opens the door for what would become another Hall of Fame manager. Yeah, and uh, the, the rest is history, as they say. Uh, bleeding Dodger Blue, Tommy Lasorda. Now, you also talk about uh, Billy Buckner in the book. Now, he, he got a raw deal uh, down here uh, through the 1986 World Series with that uh, grounder that uh, he really never lived down. But he was a big part of your life, wasn't he, Ron? Well, from the beginning, uh, you know, we, we all signed in 1968. He went to Ogden with uh, the uh, the nucleus of those players on the draft, and I went to Tri-Cities, Washington, a Class A 
uh, club. Uh, I went the other way, and I had Joe Ferguson, Doral Alexander, and uh, Bobby Buckner on my team. So uh, through his brother's relationship, you know, I got to know Bill, and uh, Bill got to know me. And uh, the next spring, actually, uh, because we had to go back to school after that half summer of playing, um, we were the only two players that were late for, I think, spring training because of our school commitment. And um, so we flew to Los Angeles. Uh, actually, I flew to Los Angeles. Buck was going to USC at the time. And uh, we got on the KO2 plane and flew to Vero Beach. And we were the only two players on the on the flight, and, along with uh, Al Campanas, the secretary, Marge Roundtree. So we bonded a great deal there. And then once we got there, uh, Bobby Valentine and Tom Shark. Uh, who also played Nogden with Bill, uh, we, 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 uh, now had a foursome. And so did a lot of things together in spring training. And it was, uh, good to be able to hang out with some guys that, you know, were, had their sights set on, on what I had as well. Right. Uh, some great baseball names mentioned in the book, folks. Uh, as we said, Bobby V, Tom Pachurik, uh, also Marvin Miller get some mention in there from from Ron. We'll we'll let you read that for yourself. Uh, Ron says stopping by tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now the '81 series, we spoke about that a little earlier. You you took one in the head, Ron. I remember that uh, from Goose Gossage. What what do you remember, if anything, about that? What happened? Uh, Goose Gossage, let's fly I'm with a fastball. Oh, I'm kidding, yeah. I'm kidding. No. I get you. I get you. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, I had a concussion. I, sw- I fell in slow motion. My wife thought I actually uh, uh, died on the spot. Oh, gee. Uh, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, comfortable, I can say that. Um, uh, uh, we, we had all the tests taken. Excuse me, Bill. I got to clear my throat for one second. Sure, go ahead, Ron. Um, I, I didn't uh, suffer any. <clears throat> excuse me, uh, any damage uh, immediately. Um, we went into the clubhouse. I had an ice turban on my head, and uh, luckily we were near the end of the game. And that way I could then take an easy shot and get out of the stadium and get to the hospital so I could have the MRI and the CAT scan and everything else I needed to do. Uh, Bob Lemon and, and Goose Gossage came over to the training room after the game to check me out, and I played winter ball with Goose in Puerto Rico, so I, I, there, there wasn't any hostility going on there. It mm-hmm. was just a pitch that got away, uh, as far as I know. Uh, and uh, I got to uh, uh, Sentinel Hospital. We did the tests. Uh, I went back home that night, uh, and I had to return the next uh, morning because the team had already left. They'd gone back to New York to continue the series, and uh, I had to go through the last checkout uh, before I was cleared. And I cleared myself. <laughs> Under today's protocol, I would have been uh, ruled out. Right. I would not have had a chance to return. And that would have hurt a lot more than Goose Gothage's meaning, uh, uh, no question about it. Uh, so I was fortunate 
to have one extra day uh, because of weather, uh, and so I had an extra day's rest. And by the time that I uh, had gone to Yankee Stadium early and, and conducted a number of tests uh, to go through so that I knew that if I was out there running and stuff, I wouldn't get dizzy, and uh, uh, I passed the tests and was sort of was following me around like one of my dogs, uh, <laughs> Shadow, and how you doing? How you doing? How you feeling? You okay? Yeah. yeah. If you leave me alone, I might be able to find out more how I feel. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he showed me the lineup and he says, you know, the fourth spot's open, you know, and I'm saying, yeah, I, I, I know where I'm hitting. I know what's happening. Just let me go take batting practice. Let's get this thing over with. So I had to go try on a new helmet and I didn't have the ear flap back then. I had just a, uh, you know, a straight almost cap, but it was a hard cap. Right. And uh, I was very lucky to escape that, um, and, and that's one of the reasons why I was able to come back. Um, you know, I didn't have my cheekbone caved in or anything like that. Uh, that would have been extremely difficult. You saw what happened to Billy Canigliaro years and years ago, and Dickie Thon had one as well. And, right. And uh, I'm probably leaving somebody out, uh, but uh, those two were really, really serious. And... Uh, I was fortunate that I didn't sustain any of that, but I did have, uh, I did come out of that game six. Uh, I did get busy, uh, come running the bases in the, in the, in the inning that we blew the game open. And, uh, the next inning I went out and played third base and, uh, this ball came at me like a fuzzy tennis ball. It was just a little humpback liner for the third out. And I went to Lasorda and saying, you know, I got to shut it down. Uh, I don't want anything bad to happen on this watch. It looks good. If not, I can play tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So, so that that's the deal with that, folks. Wow. Now, w- one person you mentioned in the book, you dedicate the book to your wife. We just had uh, Carl Erskine on, and what you have in common with Carl, among other things, Ron, is a strong woman behind you. And uh, tell us a little, you've been married for 50 years. Tell us a little bit about <laughs> yeah. your wife. <laughs> well, I don't know how she's put up with me for this long, but um, uh, back when we first met, it was uh, you know through a, uh, a fraternity brother and uh, his wife who, that was going. They were he was in uh, law school at Arizona State, and she was in grad school there, and they were neighbors. And eventually, my coming over there and catching up with uh, my friends uh, led to meeting her and. Um, <clears throat> It, it didn't take long. I don't. I don't recommend the path that we took. Uh, you might want to get to know somebody a little bit better than we did at the time, but um, <laughs> it worked, and uh, I can't guarantee success of it happening that way. Even though this one's lasted 50 years, but uh, I married a very strong and independent woman, and uh, she uh, was good on her own. Uh, and you know, we had two kids after. Let's see. Uh, four years of marriage, uh, and uh, after the sixth year. So uh, now, you know, going on the road back then was difficult because we, we were gone for 10 days to two weeks. Longer trips, and yeah. It seemed like. And now, you know, they're gone a week back, back home a week and so on. It's, it's not such a long haul. And, you know, you come back after that two-week road trip, and you're kind of worn out and, and – she now is getting worn out because she's had the kids and every job that I would have uh, in between. 
uh, for two weeks, and she needs a break. And so it's like we're just kind of ships crass, uh, passing in the night, you know, uh, for a while. And uh, different hours, everything. But, you know, I, I, I had to have somebody that could keep it in place, and she did. And uh, we've been very fortunate. You know, Mike, I have two two grandkids from each uh, child, uh, three girls and a boy, and um, I'm having the time of my life with them. Nice. Good story, Ron. That, that, that's uh, what we like to hear. Now, one final thing, one quick question. These guys today, uh, everybody's got a song. When they come up to bat, when they're warming up uh, oh, on the mound, what would be your walk-up music, Ron, say? I, I I have no idea. You know, I have. Uh, you know, I think uh, I think they sang the uh, the beginning of the anthem when I walked up a couple of times. We go dun 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 dun. Uh, I don't know what I would have. Uh, it certainly wouldn't be that. I think uh, it would be something different, something a little bit more hip. But uh, hail to the chief. The, uh, the, yeah, the kids today. I mean, that are playing. I call them kids. Uh, you know. Uh, they, they they seem like it, uh, you know. They have a completely different brand of baseball that they play, and they celebrate a great deal. And you know, I think it took us all a while to kind of get the grasp of that uh, because we were so different. Uh, if you started celebrating against a guy like Bob Gibson, oh boy, uh, yeah, in particular, you know, I mean, and Don Drysdale, uh, a couple guys who wouldn't be afraid to knock you down. Um, it's just a different style, and you know, I, I kind of, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm growing into it, and I, I, uh, I don't know. Some of it's really extreme, though. I think it's really borderline. Some of this stuff. I agree. But uh, I, I, uh, I think that uh, it would have been nice if we could have been able to, you know, display our emotions a little bit. You know, we can We all. I, I tried to mask mine. You know, I may have been smiling ear to ear, but. You know, I, I wasn't gonna, I, I wasn't gonna try and show somebody up intentionally. Uh, uh, you know, I may, I may be, like I say, it may be in a, the game winner, I may have smiled coming around with base because the game's over with. But, uh, yeah, we, it just, uh, it was just better that we, you know, drew our celebration after the game in the clubhouse. Different game, Ron. That, that, that's the story. Now, it's been a pleasure, Ron. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us here on Sports Talk New York. The book again, folks, Penguin Power from Triumph Sports in Chicago. Check it out. All the best to you, Ron. Thanks so much, Bill, for having me. That's the great Ron Say, ladies and gentlemen. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Carl Erskine and Ron Say, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you guys for joining us. See you next on Sunday night, July 9th. I believe we may actually talk about the Yankees that night. Imagine that. Well, till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.